You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. President Eisenhower appoints Governor Earl Warren of California as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The 62-year-old Californian, shown here with his family, becomes the 14th man in our history to occupy the nation's highest judicial post. He succeeds the late Fred M. Vinson of Kentucky. Governor of his state for 10 years, Earl Warren will be the second Republican on the Supreme Court. He will preside over a tribunal which is faced with history-making decisions. You'll often hear that Dwight Eisenhower said of the appointment of Chief Justice of the United States, Earl Warren, that it was the biggest darn fool mistake he ever made. And I think it's interesting because the more it's been examined, we really don't have a lot to go on that comment. It's not like he said it into a microphone. That's for sure. It's not like he said it into in a letter. It was a conversation with another Supreme Court justice, as it turns out, Harold Burton. Harold Burton was the one Republican on the court during the 1950s. He had been appointed by Truman. And right after World War II, right around the time of World War II, and Truman was looking to do something bipartisan and appointed Harold Burton. Was friendly with Eisenhower. And apparently, according to Burton's diary, Eisenhower had told him that he considered both Justice Brennan, and Chief Justice Warren mistakes. The word a darn fool or damn fool mistake was never used. Actually, as it turns out, the only one who said anything like a damn fool mistake was John Nance Gardner talking about his acceptance of the vice presidency in 1932. Biggest damn fool mistake he ever attributed to Eisenhower mistakenly. Yet, We learn it in our textbooks. We talk about it all the time. We're talking about presidents and Supreme Court justice. This quote, Eisenhower made some comments that he wasn't exactly thrilled with Warren. If, for instance, he tells a friend in a letter that he'll he'll make choices on a non-political basis the next time around. He'll, He'll pick somebody with more legal experience. The problem with that quote, other than its lack of the kind of historical basis of fact that we kind of like to have when we start repeating things, especially for such a widely repeated quote, it's more important than that because it it kind of paints it as if uh, Eisenhower was not in support of the key decision associated with Earl Warren, and that would be Brown versus the Board of Education, which ruled segregation in schools unconstitutional. That just simply can't be. He can't be angry with Warren about that decision because, as we'll discuss, there's evidence that he and his administration supported that decision. But more to the very simple point, 
The person whose diary this quote is allegedly from, Harold Burton, that was a unanimous decision, and he was on the court at the time of the Brown versus the Board of Education decision. So I think any criticism of Earl Warren from Eisenhower is actually about some of the later decisions, maybe involving law and order or other things, that Eisenhower was not pleased with. But it's somehow attributed as, oh, he didn't like Earl Warren because he ruled on Brown versus the Board of Education. With all of that, I have this question. What did Eisenhower truly think of the Brown decision? Well, in 1967, Eisenhower said that there can be no question the judgment of the court is right. Of course, that's 1967. That's pretty late. He's not president anymore. During the time that he was president, it's best to say that he was not an obstructionist nor a hero on Brown or the related issues, and that he did not go as far with his voice as we would like or even as Earl Warren would like. As the executive branch head, a president has a range of choices about enforcement of laws. And if you did the behavioral analysis, like what did he do versus what did he say, especially when you have a president who really didn't value the power of the bully pulpit and the power of speech that much, only did that reluctantly. The executive choices that Eisenhower made, what he did, were made in a way that generally supported the Brown decision. The president who truly opposed the decision could have easily used executive tools to delay things. That would have been foreign to Eisenhower, at least as seen by his actions. A president who was opposed to the decision would not have had a hard time in the 1950s finding excuses in that era's politics to not use federal enforcement power. Yet a president also has legislative and moral leadership functions implied in the Constitution. That's why they get a veto. That's why they sign legislation if they agree. They're in that process. They speak to Congress from time to time. That's in the Constitution. So it's intended they have some role in the process. We as moderns can be rightly critical of his actions here. though. Of course, we have the luxury of a very different politics in the South and elsewhere. But he did not lend his vocal support to Brown. So while he was president, he never took the microphone and said, the court has made a decision, it's the right decision, anything like that. He never said that segregation was wrong as part of the bully pulpit. And there were a lot of civil rights efforts underway in the 1950s, and certainly, at least our view today, is that they could have benefited from somebody like that in the White House, a former World War II general with the nation's respect saying that. And it didn't happen. And that's sad. He seems to have preferred progress on the issue. So he was no hero rising above these very challenging politics. But I will note this. In terms of the Brown decision, it's oft forgot that Eisenhower's Justice Department, his attorney general, filed amicus brief on the Brown case in Oliver Brown's behalf against the Topeka School Board asking for school desegregation. Now, that amicus brief was started by Truman's administration, but when the case was re-argued, the same position was held. Had Eisenhower had a great reluctance, he could have put a stop to his attorney general, and that would have been the point to do it while it was still a case and hadn't been decided yet. 
By the way, this filing of an amicus brief by, by Eisenhower's Justice Department is not a, an unnoticed formality. The Supreme Court invited the Eisenhower administration to do it. The governor of Texas, and have to keep in mind that Texas was a state that Eisenhower pulled from the Democrats in 1952. So the governor of Texas asks Eisenhower to avoid this invitation from the court. It's not a federal matter, he says. Eisenhower writes a letter back, doesn't agree to do that. He actually dodges him a bit. He says, well, we're still considering it. He says, I'll send your note, governor, to my attorney general. Ultimately, though, his Justice Department does respond. So he doesn't speak publicly about segregation. The best guess from his letters, and letters can only partially explain things. It's between a person and another. Even if you think your letter is going to get released at some later date, it's not the same as, as, as getting to a microphone and making a statement. We often look at letters as, as that. But he says to South Carolina Jimmy Burns, that he'd like to see progress on things that you or I would consider unfair. I think that's as almost as close as you're going to get to any comments. You know, he says to his to one of his other friends that thinks the segregation issue will wither out as it's addressed at the state level, doesn't need a large federal response, and that the Supreme Court will give maximum leeway to the smaller courts. That's as much as you get from Eisenhower on personal opinion. But you know, if he had no desire at all to move the ball forward on civil rights, he could have made an easier comment to Jimmy Burns. I mean, I'm with you on this, Governor, or something like that. He doesn't. Now, Earl Warren was not pleased with Eisenhower's lack of a moral bully pulpit on Brown, and the two talked little after the decision. In fact, but prior, if you go back before Brown is decided, Eisenhower schedules a dinner with Chief Justice Warren and John W. Davis. Now, he's the 1924 Democratic presidential candidate. He's also the lawyer for the Topeka School Board. Warren did not like that. He thinks it's a conflict of interest. He doesn't like the comments Eisenhower makes during the dinner. And according to Warren, he makes a, a comment about it's just Southerners wanting to pretend they're, they're, they're schoolgirls from, from black men. And it, it's terrible comment. But the only source we have for that comment is Warren. I think actions speak where there's a dearth of words, and especially in an era where the South was distrustful of federal power. There's some comments from Hugo Black, and I think Hugo Black is a good authority on this topic. He is a Southerner. He's from Alabama. He is a former Klan member, gets put on the Supreme Court, and is one of the most liberal members. Goes all the way to the 1970s, one of the most liberal members of the court. And he still makes some comments that words on this issue isn't going to help. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. 
And Ramp Software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the President's office in the White House in Washington, D.C., we present a special address by the President of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Good evening, my fellow citizens. For a few minutes this evening, I should like to speak to you about the serious situation that has arisen in Little Rock. To make this talk, I have come to the President's office in the White House. I could have spoken from Rhode Island, where I have been staying recently. But I felt that, in speaking from the House of Lincoln, of Jackson, and of Wilson, my words would better convey both the sadness I feel in the action I was compelled today to make, and the firmness with which I intend to pursue this course until the orders of the federal court at Little Rock can be executed without unlawful interference. In that city, under the leadership of demagogic extremists, disorderly mobs have deliberately prevented the carrying out of proper orders from a federal court. You cannot discount the action that Eisenhower takes. He's the president, his executive authority. He sends in U.S. troops when he cannot get the governor of Arkansas to protect children going to Little Rock High School. The president's responsibility is inescapable. In accordance with that responsibility, I have today issued an executive order directing the use of troops under federal authority to aid in the execution of federal law at Little Rock, Arkansas. This became necessary when my proclamation of yesterday was not observed and the obstruction of justice still continues. He says he's just enforcing a court order. It was a big deal in the 1950s and it gave cover to his successor to do more. A lesser president could easily have not intervened claiming a non-intervention of state matter, or that the use of U.S. troops within its borders would be inappropriate. Ike doesn't do it. It was in his court, and he chose that correctly. The Supreme Court of the United States has decided that separate, separate 
public educational facilities where the races are inherently unequal and therefore compulsory school segregation laws are unconstitutional. Our personal opinions about the decision have no bearing on the matter of enforcement. Oh, you can look outside the issue of just school segregation for his feelings generally. I mean, Eisenhower proposed civil rights legislation in 1957. He would have a Democratic Congress, and working with Lyndon Johnson, they passed the Civil Rights Bill of 1957 over a filibuster by South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond. It's not strong legislation, but it does at least create a federal crime for anyone to conspire to intimidate voters, to take away voting rights. And it does create a civil rights division in the Justice Department to investigate things for the first time. It's a weak bill, but he signs it. But he does not meet with Martin Luther King when he's requested to do so. Doesn't see any reason for such a meeting. He sends Vice President Nixon to the meeting with Martin Luther King. On these issues, we struggle with both of these presidents between the, the good and the bad side. You know, they do some good, they do some bad. I think that one of the reasons to bring up Eisenhower is to use him as a prism to examine Lyndon Johnson. We're only talking about three years between Eisenhower sitting in the White House and Lyndon Johnson passing a civil rights bill. So I think looking at how things were in the 1950s and how a president that was very ambiguous about civil rights might provide more of a prism on just what a giant leap that Johnson was taking forward when he acted on the Civil Rights Bill of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 1965. So a little bit about the good Ike, the bad Ike. Hope you enjoyed this program. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Encouraging those who can to donate. Uh, suggest a donation of $25 at this point. You'll get the archive. I'll send you a URL where you can access all the past episodes, or most of them, to 2006. And if you do like the program, you can help a lot by telling someone about it. iTunes comments, reviews are helpful. Stitcher comments and reviews are helpful. Favorite us on Stitcher. Uh, tweet about us. My Twitter is at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. Put a note on your blog. Any way you can publicize the programs, great. And I do want to thank you for listening. This is not one where there's a big connection directly to the politics of today, but I think there is some because both these figures are under the attack from the left and the right. The left for doing too little, the right for doing too much. And I think more context is needed and we can see that these figures were just about right. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China. 
where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.